Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Amit Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the board of directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. Welcome back. And today we are very excited because we get to welcome in a guest for the first time. This is a good friend of Amit and mine, Karen Doran. She is a member of NELA Illinois' Bar With Us and one of our co-board members. Karen is a solo practitioner who focuses on plaintiff-side employment law. She's been doing this sort of work since 2004. During her career, she worked for a not-for-profit legal organization called Legal Aid Chicago, back when it was called the Legal Assistance Foundation. And she'll be able to tell us, I think there have been some other name changes as well. I always forget what their current what their current title is whenever I'm trying to get a hold of somebody over there. I always have to go back and Google. That Legal Aid Chicago, formerly LAF, is where she gained extensive experience representing claimants fighting for their unemployment benefits. Though she is a member of our private bar, attorney's bar now, she still takes on a number of those sorts of unemployment cases, particularly over the past year because of the unfortunate uptick in those claims as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. And that's what Karen is going to talk to us about today, the unemployment insurance system, how that factors into employment law, um, and what that means for everybody. Karen, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, you guys. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal background, sort of beyond those those highlights, how you got into this area of law, the sort of work you did when you were at LAF and, and, and about your practice now? Yeah, so I've always practiced plaintiff-side employment law. It's really important work. It involves discrimination, litigation, retaliation, litigation, litigation for payment for work done. You know, it's it's just a really important civil rights area of, of the law. So that's my passion. And when I started working for, at the time, it was called LAF, which is Legal Assistance Foundation. It's now called Legal Aid Chicago or LAC. We did uh, a lot of unemployment benefits work. And, and that was because there's really no money in it. <laughs> it's 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 not um, an area of the law that a lot of lawyers are chomping at the bit to get involved in. So LAF plays or LAC now plays a really important role for the community and in particular the poor community to try to win those much needed benefits. And so when I was working at LAF, I really got to to do sort of all levels of unemployment work from advising people on how to handle local office interviews to representing people at the telephone hearings with the administrative law judges or ALJs to writing briefs for the board of review to filing appeals to the circuit court. And I was even involved in a couple of appellate cases, one which went all the way up to the Illinois Supreme Court and, and we won. So although I, I, I will be honest and tell you, I was, I was not directly involved with that, but I, I was a little bit. At any rate, so, you know, unemployment benefits are just so important because they, they bridge that gap between jobs. And for so many people, it's the difference between eating and not eating, getting medicine and not getting medicine, you know, paying rent, paying your car note. And for, for most people, they're entitled to it. So it, it is a bit of a passion of mine. And let me just say one other thing, and that is over the last year, you know, I have been doing a lot of this 
work because, as you said, the unfortunate uptick due to the COVID crisis. And I kind of consider the the work that I've been doing as my contribution to the COVID effort. It's like my little lawyer way of, of sort of metaphorically making masks. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. This is incredible. I, our first guest is someone who's argued in the US, in the Illinois Supreme Court. That's amazing. So let's break well, this I down. I haven't argued at the Illinois Supreme You submitted Court. a brief. in the case that was argued. <laughs> I'm going to tell people I met someone who argued in the Illinois Supreme Court. <laughs> no, you heard it. She says she argued it. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's done now. It's done. It's, it's on a podcast. <laughs> so let's break it down a little bit. How? What's the process? I lose my job tomorrow and I want to apply for unemployment. How does that work then? So, you know, the one of the problems that we're facing right now is that none of the offices are open. So you have to do it virtually and you can do it online and that's how they want you to do it. I think you can also apply via phone. A lot of people don't have access to the Internet or don't know how to use it. <clears throat> so you can apply via phone, but that process just takes weeks and weeks. So I don't really think we need to, to go into that. But at any rate, yeah. So so you apply for, for benefits with IDES. You give them your sort of basic information. They ask about the nature of the separation because that's that's going to be one of the, the, the threshold issues for IDES. And that is who caused the separation. And if it was the employer that caused it, was it for misconduct as it's defined by the statute? Or if it was the employee who caused it, was it for good cause um, attributable to the employer? So, so yeah, there are these sort of threshold issues that have to get, get you have to get past first. If I quit and I want to get unemployment, what is good cause? What qualifies as that? Yeah, so, you know, my, my standard advice to folks who have quit is go ahead and apply for unemployment. There's sort of no downside to applying. You have to obviously be be truthful and honest to IDES, but a lot of people who quit automatically assume that they can't get benefits, and that's just not true. So, for example, if you have quit, and this happens more often than, than, than you would think, if you have quit because the employer has changed material terms and conditions of your employment, the most uh, sort of common change would be a, a reduction in pay. And there's some IDES decisions to support the idea that anything 25% or over your, your income amounts to a material uh, change. Sometimes employers move and your job now becomes too distant and so that could be a reason. There's there's another statutory reason, and that is if you're a victim of sexual harassment. So sexual harassment is specifically carved out as a reason for quitting and, and getting your benefits. Now, it's not as simple as that, right? You know, I'm not going to advise people that, you know, if they, if they feel that they've been sexually harassed, uh, just to go ahead and quit and you'll get unemployment. That's not the case. But there is this sort of carve out. And then there are other issues like, for example, if your uh, physician advises you that you can no longer perform that job. And so long as you've given your employer that information and the opportunity to what we call cure the situation, i.e. like, you know, get you another job or, or change the, the essential functions of the job to allow you to perform it, then, you know, so long as, you, as you've done that and the employer says, gee, I'm, I'm real sorry, but there's really nothing we can do, you can, you can quit and still get benefits. 
Yeah, that's interesting because I think a lot of those situations are things we've we've all seen a lot of during the pandemic. I, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I was getting a lot of calls where companies weren't necessarily breaking the law in how they did it and setting aside whether we supported those decisions to cut wages or not. Like you kind of understand why these things are happening with the pandemic. And these folks were saying, well, I just got my wages cut in half. You know, it's almost not worth it for me to work at this point. If I quit, what you know, what are my rights here? Because we don't do a lot of unemployment work. My first thought goes to, well, what's legal about the wage actions? But what you're saying is if somebody cuts somebody's wages to the point where it's at least 25%, they may still be eligible for unemployment if they end up having to quit as a result of that. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. The COVID pandemic has also, you know, not just this this issue of, of wage reduction, but the COVID pandemic has also brought forth a whole lot of cases concerning that 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 issue about whether or not it's it's safe medically, you know, for you to to continue to work. And you know what's interesting about that is that that's that's a bit tricky, right? Because what I talked about was that you'd have to have a physician, because that's just my shorthand way of saying a, a licensed and practicing medical provider in, in the state of Illinois to, you know, tell you, look, you, you you can't work there. Now a lot of people aren't seeing their doctors, right? COVID changed everything. And but they but they're following CDC guidelines, they're listening to Dr. Fauci, who is a doctor. <laughs> and and I and saying, gee, yeah, I've got, you know, diabetes and I've got asthma and I'm over 60, that puts me at, at high risk. So a lot of people, I, I think, are maybe not getting direct advice from their physicians to quit because of the, the danger posed to their health by the workplace under COVID. A lot of people, nevertheless, are, you know, correctly assuming that that they're at a, a much higher risk for real bad complications if they were to contract the virus and so are are deciding to 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 quit their jobs and that gets interesting right because you know IDES struggles i think my experience has been that IDES struggles with whether that is a valid reason under the state rules to get state unemployment benefits. And, and, and if it isn't because there wasn't a physician advice involved, then, you know, the other thing is, is that we have currently we've got federal unemployment benefits. And let me just take it one like step back from that yeah. kind of explain the, the, the whole structure of unemployment. Under, under normal circumstances, unemployment is a state benefit. So each of the states administers its own unemployment system. There, there are no, under normal circumstances, there are no sort of federal unemployment benefits. With the COVID crisis, that changed, and it's changed at other times in history. But currently, the United States Congress passed legislation that allows for federal benefits. And what's interesting about what they've done with the COVID crisis is that they've, they've understood that with our new economy, what we call sort of the gig economy, is that there are lots and lots and lots of workers who don't qualify for state benefits because they aren't, quote, employees, as it's traditionally defined under our statutes. And so the federal law accounts for that and that, you know, created these benefits for, for folks who wouldn't otherwise be eligible. In addition, the federal statute also qualifies people for benefits if they've lost their job as a direct correlation to COVID. And so in the situation that we're just talking about, if someone is not eligible for state benefits because IDES 
determines that there there isn't this condition preceding that their physician advised them that they couldn't do this do this job and they informed the employer and the employer says, GA, there's nothing I can do about it. There's still this opportunity to get federal benefits because you can qualify for federal benefits if you've lost your job, even through a quit because of, as, as a direct uh, corollary to COVID. So Karen, backing up for just one second, because we've described some of the exceptions to having to be fired versus quitting. If you're fired from your job, who generally is eligible besides those three classes of people you just described? Yeah, absolutely. If if you've been fired, the 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 sort of default position is that yes, you are eligible for benefits. You will be found by IDES not to be eligible for benefits if you were fired for let's let's talk about the one that that, yeah. that comes up all the time, and that is misconduct. Now, misconduct is specifically defined by the statute. There are specific things that the employer has the burden of proving in order to show that you're not eligible for having been terminated for misconduct. It is not what the average Joe on the street probably assumes misconduct to mean. So for example, we often assume that, you know, misconduct could include, gee, you're just not performing very well. You know, we thought you were going to be a better performer than this, or, you know, sort of low, low levels of, of what maybe some people would deem to be insubordination. Misconduct is specifically defined by the statute to require a, a willful and deliberate action. It's a violation of a known and reasonable rule or policy that relates to the job that you're doing. And it either has to sort of damage the employer yeah. or you have had to have done it before, have been warned that if you did it again, you'd be fired and you did it again. So, so there are a lot of things that have to be proved by the employer. One thing I wanted to add was it, it proved by the employer. So a lot of the work that we do as plaintiff's lawyers, it's our job to prove that something bad has happened to our client. But what you're saying is this is one of the odd situations where the employer actually has the burden of proving what happened. That's exactly right. So the, the burden of proof is on them. Now, whether it feels like that at the local office level or even at the hearing level with the administrative law judge is a whole different matter, but it is. The burden is theirs. They have to, they have, to have enough evidence to, to prove all of those various elements. Now, there was a, a change in the law, gosh, how long ago was that now? Six years ago, five years ago, something like that, where the ineligibility was expanded to also include people who were sort of chronically late, um, to work, you know, so so absences, even if they aren't willful and deliberate, they can still be deemed to be disqualifying. A question I get a lot is, if you get severance benefits, can you also get unemployment? That's a really interesting quandary because it depends on what sorts of, of severance we're talking about. I mean, generally, when I'm representing somebody and we've negotiated a, an agreement with the employer, I call it not a severance, I call it a settlement, 
right? My client has legal claims that she's settling with the employer and they're worth something. Now, yeah, they they may be in part calculated as back pay or lost wages, but they're not wages themselves. In other words, it's not as though she has performed work that they didn't pay her for. And so now they're paying her through this separation agreement. And so generally that's how I see it. So, so long as as the monies received by the employer are not monies due and owing for, for work performed or in lieu of work performed, right? So instead of two weeks, I'm just going to pay you your two weeks and then, you know, get lost kind of thing. Those two weeks would be deemed to be ineligible income that would make you ineligible for benefits for that period of time. I see. So if you accelerate a notice period, so if you have to give your employer, let's say, two weeks notice and instead of working, you get paid out that's not eligible for unemployment. That would mean that those two weeks that you that you got paid would, would be two weeks that you would not be receiving uh, your weekly benefit amount. That's correct. Also accrued vacation. So accrued vacation sort of works in the same way. So this is going to sound like a simple question, but I think the answer is not going to be simple. If I apply for unemployment and I get it, how much do I get and what do I get? Much well... So <laughs> that is above my pay grade. That, <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot. Sorry. Yeah. That, that is, I, you know, my answer to that is always it's an algorithm. It's a it's a it's a computer algorithm that that IDES spits out. And it, it's based on it's based on previous quarters of income. And there are, I think, at least two different ways that they calculate it. So it could be that it's you, you'd get more weekly benefit amounts if they calculate it one way over the other. And it's much more complicated than, you know, 60% of your weekly salary. It's not really that. And there's a cap, right? There's like a ceiling on what you can get. Yeah, that's right. So if you're if you're Bill Gates and you're applying for unemployment, it's not going to bankrupt the unemployment system when we pay you your billion dollars a week or whatever it is. So this is great. We're we're on Zoom while we're recording this, and Karen's cat just showed up, and we're happy because <laughs> it's Saturday morning. <laughs> My dog I, Karen was in a was talking a minute ago, and Ahmet was kind of smiling because I was fighting with my very large puppy to keep him out from <laughs> under my desk at the same time. So it's one of these things we see in COVID: uh, lawyers' faces getting turned into cat avatars on uh, filters, and cats climbing on things, and dogs barking. It's for the record, my face is not a cat's face. That's true. It, it is true. <laughs> True. We will represent for the record that Karen is telling the truth and she is not a cat. She's just holding a cat. And I think you said this earlier too. So if I'm an Uber driver, for example, I don't get the same benefits as an employee, right? I'd only potentially get these federal benefits now. That's right. You would not be eligible for state benefits because you're not an employee as it's defined by the state statute. And that's in part one of the one of the great things that came out of the you know, originally it was the CARES Act that the United States Congress passed back in, I think it was February of 2021. Yeah, so that recognized the, the importance of also protecting folks in this quote-unquote new, brave new world of the gig economy. So one of the issues I hear uh, a fair amount, I don't do a ton of management work, but the few questions I get from that side, it's usually about how is this going to affect my premium? So I think I think that's a good, a nice segue to kind of look at it in the big picture again, or start to look at it a little bit from the other side, which is who is paying for these benefits? What, what I'll say to that, because I, I, I don't have any experience representing employers in this 
for unemployment benefits. But what, what I will say is that there are times when employees do get unemployment benefits, but the employer is not chargeable. For, for example, if you're under, I, I believe under 601B, and that's the, this, the scenario that we've been talking about with regard to my doctor advises me, oh. I can't look here, I tell my employer, my employer says, gee, I'm real sorry, but there's nothing else we can do to fix the situation so that you can work. I believe under those circumstances, the employer is not chargeable because it, it, it's essentially, it's, it's sort of out of the employer's hands. So do unemployments last in perpetuity? So like if I lose my job tomorrow, I apply for benefits. I'm looking like I can show that I'm applying because my understanding is you got to show that you're trying to work. If I can't find a job for a year and a half, am I getting 78 weeks of benefits? How does that work? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> so under normal circumstances, claimants are entitled to up to 26 weeks of unemployment benefits within a, a one calendar year period. So 26 weeks is six months. And what that does is that the, the, the one calendar year period thing, what that does is that allows folks to get all 26 weeks, even if there are certain weeks where she hasn't done a great job of looking or, you know, let's say she gets the flu. And so she's unable to look for a week and a half when she accurately informs IDES that she wasn't able and available to work during that period of time. And so IDES says, okay, well, we won't pay you benefits for that you know, week and a half period, but then she can pick them up at the end, right? So long as it's within that one calendar year period. So how does this work then with like a furlough with the 26 weeks? It's, if you're furloughed, are you eligible to receive unemployment? Maybe that's a simpler question. And then if so, it seems, yeah, it seems like then you could, you're working, you're furloughed, you're working again, you're furloughed. You could then play around with the 26 weeks a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of seasonal employees will go in and out of getting unemployment benefits for that very reason. And in the, in the time of COVID, there's been some emergency rules that have been enacted to account for the idea that folks have been, quote unquote, furloughed, or as far as we understand, have been furloughed. So, for example, I mean, the sort of classic example is, is restaurants. So the restaurants were closed by order of the government, and obviously people could not work. But the idea was that they were going to be able to come back. And so for that furlough period, you know, for folks still were employed, they had a job, but they just weren't working. But what I'll say is in my anecdotal experience, that's been difficult because of the requirement to be reasonably looking for, for other work. And there's that clash between, look, I have a job. And it's a good paying job. And I've been there for a long time and I've got seniority and I've got benefits and I'm not going to give that up to start working at the bottom floor of, of, of whatever it is. But at the same time, IDES still you know, requires folks to look for work. Now, I talked about those emergency regulations and there, there's, there's one, for example, that says that folks who are furloughed kind of in that situation, they don't have to post their resume to the Illinois Job Bank, which is normally a, a condition that you have to meet in order to be deemed able and available to work. But yeah, there's cracks in the law that make this idea about furlough and able and available and reasonably looking for, for a job kind of fact specific and, and difficult. 
Well, the reasonably looking for a job standard seems like such a quagmire right now. I mean, we've had a pandemic for the last year. So if you're a restaurant worker, how do you reasonably look for a job? That's right. And it has to do, again, it's fact specific, right? It has to do with your own work experience, background, where you live, what sort of transportation opportunities you have, what the jobs numbers are like, just a whole slew of factors. And frankly, what I find is when we're dealing with those types of of issues, it really depends on the individual judge. So some of the ALJs, are, are, are much more sympathetic and, and understanding about how difficult it is to find work and others, not so much. So I, I think that's a nice segue into the process here of like, how does this work? So if you lose your job, you go, you know, you described, you go to the IDES website under normal circumstances, you can go into an office, but obviously none are doing that right now. Or you can, if you're really uh, a glutton for punishment, you can try to navigate their, their Byzantine phone system. So, so you apply for benefits. And then I think you said somebody makes an initial determination whether or not you're eligible, right? That's right. But that's not the end of the line because either party can appeal from that point. Tell us what it looks like from there, kind of the the, the Cliff Notes version. So I appeal, either I'm granted benefits or I'm initially denied benefits, but that's not the last word. That's right. So, so when you apply for benefits, IDES will send a notice to your last employer, giving them a very short period of time, 10 days, to what's called protest your claim for benefits. And if the employer timely protests, so the employer becomes a party. And so if you win your benefits at the local office level, that's what I you know, we refer to it as the local office level, then, then the, the employer party can appeal it to the, the administrative law judge level. And so just just to kind of go back a little bit with the local office, what happens is if and not every benefit, not every claim is is sort of investigated to to any real extent by IDES, but sometimes they are. So certainly, if if an employer protests, that would cause or typically cause an investigation, which which is really just the local office, what we call adjudicator, doing interviews with both the claimant and the employer. And there may be it goes with the you know there's maybe an interview with the claimant and then an interview with the employer and then a sort of rebuttal interview with the with the claimant. You know, sometimes that happens. And sometimes the parties will send in documentation to to support their their sides. And then the the local office adjudicator takes all that into account and makes this decision. You know, each local office adjudicator has just tons and tons and tons and tons of these claims coming through. So these are pretty, pretty quick. When I say investigation, we're not talking about, you know, a a full-fledged investigation. Nobody's doing a uh, discovery request or FOIA request to, to offices okay. for documents. Uh, <laughs> it sickens some some forensic evidence. <laughs> I, I was I was all set for the unemployment DNA discussion. You just knocked off another twenty minutes of questioning, Karen. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and so 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 after that dis- after that determination um, is made, and then the parties get a copy of the determination, and then either party who's grieved can can appeal it to the to the ALJ. And when that happens, I, I should say that there is sort of an automatic what's called reconsideration. So so the IDS automatically at the local office levels reconsiders its its decision to see if there's anything sort of probably facially wrong with it. I, I, I think I've only had experience where something's been um, reconsidered 
once. But normally what happens is it just goes right on to the appellate level, and that's with your administrative law judge. And then you you get a, a telephone hearing date, and then the judge calls the parties and the witnesses, takes evidence, and then a decision from the ALJ is, is rendered. And then you can, you know, either party that's been aggrieved by that has an opportunity to appeal that to what's called the board of review. And you can get a copy of the of the transcript of the hearing. You can get a copy or you're technically <laughs> allowed to get a copy of the record. We're finding in the time of COVID that that is not impossible. But at any rate, you, you get the transcript. And then you can you can write a, a legal brief in support of your position. And then the other party gets a copy and has an opportunity to, to respond. And then the board of review makes makes its decision. And then either party that's agreed by uh, aggrieved by that has the right to then appeal it to the circuit court and then to the appellate court and then to the Illinois Supreme Court. And then I suppose the United States Supreme Court after that, but I, I I've not heard of that. So <laughs> and, and, and you heard it right here. Karen is taking the first unemployment brief to the Supreme Court. She worked on it. It's her case. And she took it start to finish. Getting <laughs> right. up canon now. <laughs> I'm sorry, so, I'm a troll and I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> so what are some horror stories you've heard or just ridiculous mm-hmm. stories? So, for example, my boss found out she pl- applied for unemployment recently. <laughs> Right? I, I've heard I've heard lots of lots of lots of stories about involving law firms, right? Where you know, as, as you said, you know, the, the partner gets noticed that that she herself has has applied. So, you know, I think we've all heard in the news lots and lots of stories about fraud. There's there's just like widespread fraud, and it's not limited to the state of Illinois. It's happening everywhere. Although, of course, what's immediately concerning is what's happening here in our state. So. I guess just to tie it all back to the rest of the work you do that we sort of mentioned on the front end and employment law more broadly, you know, you mentioned this is not exactly the most lucrative way as an attorney to make a living doing these hearings, but are there ever other reasons why you might, besides the fact you want to help your client and we all care a lot about what we do and and want to make sure our clients are are well taken care of and protected, is there another reason you or another attorney might get involved at the unemployment stage, or is there some value from an evidentiary perspective to what you learn at the unemployment stage? Like, what do you, what, what's admissible if you, like, let's say you get a sexual harassment suit and your client quits because the boss won't stop doing something inappropriate and they get to the unemployment stage, they've got an explanation for why they left the job. It's it's not my fault. My boss was doing something awful to me. Can you use that testimony you might get in a hearing or that evidence in court? What what value to that larger case does this process serve? Why yeah. might you get involved? Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Very often the the our our clients are people who are unemployed, right? That's nine times out of ten. Uh, <laughs> What, what their employment status is. And so I would encourage any lawyer who has a retaliation, a wage, a, a interference, discrimination claim to, to themselves get involved in the unemployment claim because of that evidentiary sort of goldmine, right?
right? So what what's what's important about that is that you get an opportunity, if it goes to hearing, you get the opportunity to cross-examine key witnesses. You get the opportunity to sort of box them in as to what their what we call legitimate business reason is for the, the termination. And that's on the record. That that is that is an admission. Now, whether or not it's it's admissible as evidence depends on what you're, which court you're in. So in federal court, it is. The, the federal courts, it's pretty standard stuff that, that that is admissible. In state court, in Illinois state court, I don't have experience fighting for it, but my understanding is that it's not. The statute itself, the unemployment statute itself, specifically says this is not admissible um, evidence. And so that's why... The, my understanding is that in, in, if you've got a case in Illinois state court, that's not going to roll. But you still have a statement. You still have an understanding of the employer's defense at that sort of early, early stage. So that's still really important. The other thing is, is that, as I said before, if, if an employer protests, it can include documents. And, and very often they, they do. And those, you know, you could you can get by requesting them from IDES, and you know, if they're going to use them as, as exhibits to the hearing, you got to get them anyway. So, so you get this sort of early discovery. So, it, it is really important to 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 have that stuff. Yeah. In, in my experience, I'll tell you, in my experience, if you've already sort of filed a charge, for example, with the EEOC, nine times out of ten, the employer is not going to show up for a hearing because they they don't want that extra discovery in there. That's helpful. Thanks, Karen. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to do one more segment. But before we do that, is there anything you want to plug? Anything we yeah. missed about your background, your work, your firm, what you're doing? I know we talked a lot about IDES, but there's a lot more to you than that. So if there's anything we missed, let us know. Yeah. No, I, you know, I could talk about IDES issues for, for a whole long time. I mean, Max, you, you mentioned, you know, are there any other sort of weird anecdotal stories we can share. I mean, we can, you know, brew the coffee pot and, and <laughs> for the next couple of hours talking about all this stuff. I can tell you, and, and I just I just wanted to sort of touch on that really quickly. And that is that so many people are hurting right now. I mean, it it, you know, from from problems with being told three different things from the local office to not being able to contact the local office, to getting weird, weird decisions based on things that you know are factually false. All these rampant problems with fraud, you know, and, and identity theft. And then, you know, I, I think right now what I'm seeing a lot of, I think we're all seeing a lot of is a lot of really scared people over this recruitment notices that folks are getting that they owe so much money back to the state, right? Oh, gee, we made a mistake. You know, please send us a check for $16,000. So we're just seeing so many, there, there are lots and lots of, of horror stories uh, to share right now. And, and, and I think, you know, what, what I can say is that, you know, Neil Illinois is, is, doing its its utmost to keep lines of communications open with the governor's office, with the um, agency itself, with various representatives at the state and local levels to try to fix some of these systemic problems. And, and we're going to continue to do that. 
Just to loop our listeners in, Karen Ahmet and I all serve on Neela, Illinois' Legislative Committee, and Karen has been really hard at work as one of the one of the key members of the COVID-19 subcommittee to the Legislative Committee, just to make it more complicated there, guys. But but they've been working really hard trying to stay in contact with the governor's office, trying to get these these this overburdened and really complicated system working better for people so that the governor's office knows what kind of problems everybody's running into. So that's what Karen's sort of alluding to there. And she and others have really been hard at work doing that, fighting for people and trying to make sure that people have access to this. You know, they're not, I mean, you heard from Karen, no one's getting rich off these benefits, but it's important work to make sure people at least have access to what they're entitled to. Yeah. That's that's very true. And then you you also sort of invited me <laughs> to talk about other other areas that I'm interested in. You know, a, apart from having a, a robust practice litigating Title Seven and ADA and Illinois Human Rights Act and ADEA and FMLA and all the alphabets that 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 I do a practice and really that's the focus of of my practice is discrimination, retaliation, interference claims. I also have a, a bit of a, of a passion for another state law called VESA, and it's the Illinois Victims Economic Security and Safety Act. And I think this is such a, a, a powerful and wonderful statute that our state has. We've had it, I want to say it was passed in, in 2003, and it carries you know, a three-year statute of limitations, which is a really great statute of limitations. And, and what this law does is it protects people who are victims of um, domestic or sexual violence from losing their jobs or from being discriminated against because of, of that status. So, you know, for example, it's, it's, certainly not unheard of and it's it's actually kind of understandable i say to to a certain extent and that is if what when when an employee is a is a victim of domestic violence you know she's she's living in a very violent situation that that spills over to all parts of her life and very often you know the 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 assailant knows where she works and can make that situation unsafe by stalking her there or uh, showing up there. And that makes everybody at that job uncomfortable because they they feel, you know, unsafe. And so this this law protects people who are victims of domestic violence for being fired because they are victims of domestic violence. And it happens. I mean, that's that's why the law was passed. It's because it happens. And not every state, most states don't have such a law. And that's why this law is such an important law and and and, and one that that I've uh, litigated a, a number of times. That's incredible. I, I think, I mean, that's incredible. I think it's an incredibly important law. And I definitely want to have you back on for the conversation about VESA, what the law does, uh, what its purpose is, because I don't think a lot of people, even attorneys know about this law, know what it does. Employees should know, quite frankly, based on what you said. That's true. Domestic domestic violence organizations, they know. (laughs) They're really, really up on it, which which is really great. 
That's awesome. So let's we'll definitely have you back to continue that conversation. Max, you got something? You got you got a face here. No, just overly expressive. Yeah. Well, we want to end our interviews with our guests with a shout out of anything. It can be pretty broad. It can be as simple as a guilty pleasure to someone who did something amazing in the last week. So do you, we're going to put you on the spot one more time. We if you have warn you about this. Yeah, this is intentional. <laughs> All yeah. right. So, so I get to, I get to talk nice about somebody. You anything you want. Yeah. It could be a show. It could be a book. It could be someone, it could be anything you want. The floor is yours. Well, it's my son. So my son, Jack is 18 and he is a freshman at Michigan state. I went we to were, Michigan state, but I root for Alabama. Oh, yeah. We were so, we were so close to being friends, Karen. And <laughs> you go to U of M? I did. All right. I have a anyway. slippery rock shirt on because our football season was depressing, but <laughs> yeah. So my shout out is to my son who is um, coming home today. So I, when I'm done with this, I'm going to go upstairs and uh, freshen up his room. And That's amazing. That's awesome. So, That's a great way to end this too. That's yeah. amazing. I love Karen, that. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? So the best way is to call me. And my number is 630-384-9367 and or email me. And my email address is karen at karendoranlaw.com. So that's D-O-R-A-N. And we'll, um, when this posts, we'll post Karen's contact information, web information, any of that in the show notes. So in case people are driving or, you know, don't have a pen with them and want to come back and look later, we'll have Karen's contact information and firm information in the show notes so people can get in touch. Hey, with thanks, you guys. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this important topic. This has been Employee to Lawyer, the Employment Law Podcast. This podcast is presented by and on behalf of NELA, Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who employ our workplace rights. If you want more information about NELA, Illinois, please visit our website at www.nela-illinois.org. Again, www.nela-illinois.org. If you need an attorney, please use our Find a Lawyer function or just peruse the website to find one of our outstanding attorneys. Karen. Thank you so much again for coming on. Again, this has been Karen Doran. If you enjoy listening to Amit and I ramble and our wonderful guests explain things in a helpful way, please subscribe and share. Definitely subscribe and share. And we're going to have Karen on again to talk about VESA. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much, you guys. This is great. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment laws. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinion. We are not your attorneys. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.